Good morning, and would you turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2 once again as we focus a third time on the 42nd verse of Acts chapter 2. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. If you would, for a moment, in your mind's eye, go back with me 3,400 years, and let's picture ourselves standing with a Moabite man overlooking the tents of Israel out in the wilderness. He looks down. He sees the encampments of Israel around a tent-like structure in the middle, and he goes to check it out, wandering through all of the different encampment areas. He goes to this huge 10-foot cloth wall of the tabernacle. He doesn't know what it is. So he goes to the gate, and there at the gate, looking in, he says to the gatekeeper, Hey, can I go in and check it out? And the gatekeeper says, Well, who are you? Any member of the tribes of Israel, any Israelite can enter. He goes, Well, I'm not an Israelite, I'm a Moabite. The man stops him and says, I'm sorry, you're not allowed to enter. He goes, Well, what would I have to do to get inside? He said, Well, you'd have to be born an Israelite. And so the man sort of hangs his head and he says, Boy, I wish I was, I wish I was born an Israelite. And looking in, he notices a priest with garments on, and he offers a sacrifice on a brass altar out there in the wilderness inside that enclosure. And then he washes his hands at a laver and walks inside another little tent-like structure. In noticing him, the Moabite gentleman says, What's that? And the gatekeeper says, Well, the man you saw is a priest, and... After offering the sacrifice, he's going to go inside this room. And in that room, is called the holy place. There's a lampstand. And there's also a table with bread on it. And there's a little altar where he burns incense. And that man is going to trim the lamps. And he's going to eat some of that bread. And he's going to burn incense, which represents our prayers to God. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. The Moabite says, Wow, I wish I was an Israelite. I'd love to go in there as well. And the priest or the gatekeeper says, no, 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 even I can't go in there. It's reserved only for the priests. And to be a priest, you have to be of a special tribe, of the tribe of Levi, and you have to be of the family of Aaron. And then looking in further, the Moabite says, well, what else is in there? He says, well, beyond that first room is a second room after a veil, and that second room is called the Holy of Holies, and inside there is a special piece of furniture called the Ark of the Covenant. And inside that chest is our law and a few other items that represent our past. But he said, my friend, that's where God lives. God dwells in a special presence over that atonement lid, that Ark of the Covenant. And the man says, boy, I wish I were an Israelite. I wish I was from the tribe of Levi, and I wish I was from the family of Aaron. I'd love to go in there as well. The gatekeeper said, well, you wouldn't be able to, because that is reserved for only the high priest to go inside that room. He said, wow, well, I wish I were an Israelite of the 
tribe of Levi, of the family of Aaron. I wish I were a high priest because if it is as you say, that's where God lives. I would be there at least three times a day, if not more. I'd be there all the time to fellowship with this God. The gatekeeper said, well, my friend, you couldn't do that. Because a high priest can go in that room, but he can only go in once a year, and he can go in after elaborate cleansings and after elaborate sacrifices, and he can go in there for a short time, and his heart better, better be right, or he'll die. And so you can imagine the Moabite hangs his head and walks away without any hope of ever having that kind of access to God. Now, I shared that little story with you because now we have some understanding why one of the items in the top four priority list for the early church was the breaking of bread because it represented to them the access with God that no one could ever have in Israel's history in the past. You see, these first Jewish Christians in Jerusalem lived in the shadow of the temple And there in the temple were courtyards and walls of separation that kept men in one section, women in another section, priests in another section. And nobody could get into that very intimate spot with God until Jesus came, died. The veil of the temple was ripped. God gave access. And that communion table represents the access that we can have with God. So we continue then in verse 42 this morning with with our study of Acts 2.42, and we look at this third priority, which is the Lord's Supper. Several years ago, I had an assistant pastor who was buying a large amount of grape juice at a local supermarket for our communion services. And he walked up with all these jars of grape juice, and there was a lady in line with several six-packs of beer who noticed all this grape juice that this guy was carrying, and she turned back and said, Having a party, huh? And my assistant pastor turned to her and said, As a matter of fact, yes, we are celebrating. And what a great door he had to talk about what we were celebrating. Let's begin with the priority of breaking of bread. It is interesting, and some find it almost uh, awkward, strange, that of all of the things that would be priorities to the early church, It says, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. We go, I I can understand that. You've got to have the Bible to do anything else. And fellowship. Well, I can understand that. That's where you get together and you share that intimate kind of fellowship and togetherness that you must have as believers. But then third on the list is this, the breaking of bread. There is a, a debate, sort of, as to what this actually means. Does it mean breaking of bread in the sense that Jesus broke the bread and distributed it to his disciples, i.e. the communion service? Or is breaking bread uh, a euphemistic phrase for just sharing a meal together? You know, come on, let's go out and break bread. And the answer is both. Both. You see, if you look back in the annals of church history, a tradition developed where people would get together and have a sacred meal. They called it the agape, the love feast. It's mentioned in Jude, verse 12. And they would have a meal together, and then at the culmination or at the end of the meal, they would have the Lord's Supper, the communion. And so now in chapter 2, verse 42, 
it sort of starts to all make sense that when they gathered together as early Christians, when they met, they first centered everything around what the Bible says about God, them, the future, God's plan for them. And then they enjoyed intimate fellowship with one another. They were devoted to that, which included the breaking of bread, that intimate sharing of mealtime, as well as the breaking of bread and the Lord's Supper. I understand that the ancient peoples and the early church being a part of them attached a far greater significance to eating than we do today. It was a sacred thing to eat with somebody. You know, we, we just sort of do it because, well, it's lunchtime. I'm hungry, right? You know, a praying scarf is sort of our approach. But not back in those days. To break bread with someone was to share a common nourishment The same food that you are partaking of is the same food that I am partaking of. So you and I are being nourished by the same essence. We're entering into a unique kind of fellowship and oneness with each other over a meal. That's the idea. When Jesus spoke to the church in Revelation, he said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone will hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and what? Sup, eat, take a meal with him because that spoke of an intimate form of fellowship. And meals are still considered something important that we do together. When there is a wedding, there is a wedding meal. When there are funerals, typically there is a funeral meal. Uh, When there are fundraising events, it usually centers around a meal. Um, Even in the business community, let's do lunch. Meals are important. So they would gather together, have a meal, and it would culminate with the communion. By the way, uh, it was a great tradition and it was a great idea, but it can, like anything, become perverted. Because Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11, their love feasts had degenerated in free-for-alls and just sort of a party atmosphere. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul writes, It's not the Lord's Supper that you're concerned about when you come together. For I am told that some of you hurry to eat your own meal without sharing it with others. As a result, some go hungry while others get drunk. Well, let's go back to this, Acts 2.42. Again, some find it surprising that it would be in the top four of the priorities of the early church. But it shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't because it was one of the things Jesus commanded that the early church, that his believers do. He took the Passover and he broke and distributed to them. And he said in an imperative, do this in remembrance of me. And the early church understood that importance and meaning, that it wasn't optional, that we're to do this often because it's something the Lord commanded us to do. And they understood its significance, that when we take communion, just like the belief that we're becoming one and nourished over the same elements, it also speaks of a unique kind of oneness that we share, that it somehow doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter your gender, male or female. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, because all of that stuff is pushed away, and we're now on common ground, equal footing at the foot of the cross. Now, here's a question. Jesus said, do this often in remembrance of me. How often is often? 
How often should the Lord's Supper, the breaking of bread, take place? Well, you'll get different answers to that. Some churches will say, every day. Other churches will say, once a week. Still other groups might point to a once a month gathering. Some historians and theologians will show you some documents from early church history that show that the Christians got together and celebrated the Lord's Supper at every single meal. So I'm sort of glad that Jesus left it up in the open. He just said, do it often. You do it often. And for some people, often is every meal. For some people, often is every day or every week or every month. But I think it's safe to say that the early church practiced it uh, on a once-a-week basis, at least in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 20, it says, On the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread. And then there was a document that was circulated around the early churches called the Didache, which simply means, as you remember, the doctrine or the teaching. And it was supposedly a document written by the twelve apostles as to church order. It's not a biblical book. It's not a canonical document. But it is something that speaks of the practices of the early Christian communities. And there are prayers that are written in this document, the Didache, prayers for the communion service to be prayed and practiced on a weekly basis. So that's the priority. They gave themselves continually or devoted themselves steadfastly to the Apostles' Doctrine, the breaking of bread, third on the list. Now, I'd like you to turn with me over to the Gospel of Luke for just a moment. Luke chapter 22. We have seen the priority of breaking of bread. I'm taking you to Luke 22 to show you the pattern of the breaking of bread. This is how it all began. In verse 7, Then came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. So they said to him, Where do you want us to prepare? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house that he enters. And you'll say to the master of the house, The teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And then he will show you a large, furnished upper room there make ready. So they went and found it just as he said to them, and they prepared the Passover. When the hour had come, he sat down with the twelve apostles with him, and he said to them with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and he gave thanks and he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he said to them, this is my body which is given for you, do this in remembrance of me. Likewise also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup in the new covenant in my body or in my blood, which is shed for you. i got to tell you, all of this was a bit unexpected for Jesus' twelve buddies, his friends, his apostles who were around that table. Oh, they were used to the Passover. They were Jewish. They grew up with these Seder feasts every year. 
But it was new and unexpected because Jesus puts a new twist on it. He suddenly introduces to them the fulfillment of the new covenant. Jeremiah predicted it. Jesus said, this is it. Remember on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to do away or destroy them. I have come to fulfill them. Here is Jesus fulfilling something they were used to practicing, that is the Pesach or the Passover. The Passover, the the memorial that every year the Jews would celebrate that spoke of their deliverance from slavery. They were slaves for hundreds of years in Egypt. And the Passover meal spoke of the deliverance from Egypt. And so what Jesus does is take something familiar and brings fulfillment to it by saying, here's something new, here's a new twist on it, here is the new covenant. Just as the Passover supper spoke of a physical, temporary deliverance from slavery. Here, the Lord's Supper celebrates the permanent spiritual deliverance from the slavery of sin. I don't know if you've ever been to a Jewish Passover meal, but I encourage you to go check one out, especially if that Seder feast is done with the Christian emphasis, Jesus being the fulfillment of the Jewish Messiah. It's beautiful. It's pregnant with meaning at every twist. And by the way, it's a long service. They didn't sit down for a 20-minute lunch. They sat down all night and had a leisurely, beautiful meal of fellowship. I've uh, celebrated Passover on many occasions, and some of the most memorable are in the land of Israel, in the city of Jerusalem. A Jew's hope At every Passover meal, they will say at the end, next year, Be Yerushalayim, next year in Jerusalem. We're going to make it there one day. And it's just, by the way, if you ever go to Israel during Passover, good luck. All the hotel rooms are booked. Uh, It's just a place every Jew in the world wants to celebrate at least once. Well, you notice in what we read in Luke that there's the, the mention of bread being broken and wine, a cup being raised, and then uh, again after supper, Jesus takes the cup. I think it would help if in your mind you remember that the Passover meal, and by the way, communion is based on that, the Passover meal was centered around four, not one, but four cups of wine given at intervals. And so the, the feast would begin with the host raising the first cup of wine, asking the Lord to bless the evening, giving thanksgiving to God. And then the meal would begin. Prayers were given. Recitals of history were mentioned. The second cup of wine was the wine cup of judgment, as they would recall the judgment in Egypt, the ten plagues that were given. And the host would take a piece of unleavened bread, matzah, and dip it in bitter herbs, which speaks of bitter bondage, and then a, an interesting little pasty sweet mixture called charoset, which is honey and apples, and uh, it's very pasty, which speaks of the bondage and the mortar with which they served under for all those years. And then the third cup was the cup of redemption, and that came after the meal, after the roasted lamb was eaten. And once again, the host would take bread, the afikoman, the matzah, and break the bread 
which is highly symbolic, and that's what's happening in verse 19. He took the bread and he gave thanks. And that's a very interesting phrase. Eucharistamen, he gave thanks, and it was a special thing, Jesus said. He held up that bread. They had seen it every year at Passover, and they had heard the words, Baruch Adonai Eloheinu, Melech HaOlam, HaMotzi Lechem, Min HaEretz. Blessed are you, Lord God, King of the universe, who has given us this bread. They blessed the bread. But then Jesus made mention that it was a new covenant. And he took the wine in verse 20, and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. That was the third cup in the meal, the cup of redemption. The cup of redemption. And then finally, the meal closed with the giving of another sort of a toast. A glass of wine was raised and a psalm of praise was given, a psalm of worship. And uh, that was called the cup of praise. So that's the, that's the pattern. That's the Passover. And the early church was devoted to recreating, at least in part, the elements of that night. That's where we get it from. That's the pattern of the Lord's Supper. Throughout history, and I'll just be brief on this, different strains of tradition have come down to us. And some of us may still have backgrounds in these. The Roman Catholic Church takes the elements and says that they literally become the actual body and blood, the substance of the Lord Jesus' body and blood, that the wine or the juice and the bread are changed over in their very substance into the real flesh and blood of Christ. That's called transubstantiation. Martin Luther disagreed, and in the Reformation, he came up with a concept of consubstantiation. You won't be quizzed on these words. Don't worry. It simply means that, no, the elements don't get turned into the body and blood of Christ, but that the body and blood of Christ, the presence of Christ, is somehow with these elements. Short of actually becoming the same, they're with them. Now, as years went on, people disagreed not only with the Catholics and Martin Luther, or with the Catholics, but also with Martin Luther and the Reformers. John Calvin, who was a Reformer, and Ulrich Zwingli, the Swiss theologian, said none of those were true, that actually these were merely symbols of a greater reality. That's all that it was. It was figurative. And I would probably rest in that camp. These are great, great elements that speak of a greater reality. Some will argue and say, but wait a minute, Jesus said, this is my body. Yeah, he did, but he also said, I am the door. I don't picture Jesus as actually being a wooden door, do you? Don't you think he meant something else, that he was the portal into fellowship with his father? So these anthropomorphic terms speak of a greater reality. And I I prefer to look at the bread and the juice as not looking and saying, this is the body and blood of Christ. It's not what I'm looking at. I'm using them to look through and see on the other side what they represent, the sacrifice. Now, would you quickly turn with me past Acts the other direction to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and then we'll pass out the elements together. And here's why I'm having you turn here, because this is an elaboration on the priority. We've seen the priority. They devoted themselves constantly to the breaking of bread. We saw the pattern. That's the Passover. 
Now, this is the purpose of the breaking of bread. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and I take you to verse 23. Here's the purpose. Let me give it to you. It's threefold. In communion, in the breaking of bread, we look backwards. We look to the present and we look ahead. All three are included. First of all, we look back, verse 23, For I received from him, or from the Lord, that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Don't you find it fascinating that Jesus did not tell his followers, and when I'm gone, build a monument to me. I want a marble mausoleum where my grave was. I want a big stone pillar on that mountain where the Sermon on the Mount was preached. I want you to remember me by that icon. The only thing Jesus left for remembrance was a meal. Every time you do this, you consciously focus your mind backwards on the ultimate deliverance and sacrifice for your sins, which is my broken body and blood. So we do this to look back. We remember. The world goes to bars and they drink to forget. We Christians come to the Lord's table and we drink to remember his sacrifice for us. And I'll tell you why that's good. Because we live in a culture, as we've already noted in this study, that's very self-absorbed, very self-centered, looks at every experience and reality as what's in it for me, what about me. It's me, meant to make me feel good. And unfortunately, church has become one of those activities for so many American believers. And so if there's any tendency at all to make church all about me, communion takes that away. And now our focus is on what he did. You may remember that old limerick. There once was a nymph named Narcissus who thought himself very delicious. He stared like a fool at his face in the pool and his folly today is still with us. That folly is removed when the elements of the Lord's Supper are brought out. We suddenly take our minds off everything else and we go, oh yes, he died for me. Second, it causes us to look to the present. Look in verse 25. In the same manner, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. In other words, the new covenant is established, and it's a present reality that we live in now. The Christian life should never become something that we just look backward on, but something we're experiencing in the present. Every now and then I'll speak to a Christian who sort of lost his or her love for the Lord, that personal awe of being in love with Him, and they talk about their Christian life always in the past. Oh, yeah, I remember the great revival of the past. I remember the Jesus movement. I remember how good it was. Really? Get over it. What's your life like today? How has God dealt with you today? What's the present reality? Because if there's no present reality, the past is invalid. Unless it translates into something here and now. 
So it reminds us of the past, but it causes us to look to the present. This is the new covenant. Ever seen the bumper sticker? God is my co-pilot. How wrong that is. God isn't the co-pilot. You turned the pink slip of your life over to him. You, you gave him the car. He's not the co-pilot. He's in charge now. Communion reminds us he bought me with a price. I'm his. I'm his now. Not just in the past, but right now. The third thing it causes us to do is to look ahead. And in verse 26, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. I love this part. So we're looking back. Yeah, Jesus died for my sins on the cross. We're looking to the present. My life has been given over to him. He's in control of every aspect of it. But as I take these elements, I'm reminded that the very one who died for me and left said, I'll be back. He's coming again. And it places me in anticipation mode to expect his return. Jesus said to his twelve I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the day I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. The next time Jesus will take the elements will be with us at the marriage supper, I believe. And just as much as he anticipates that event, something that you and I should anticipate. Let me ask you a question. Are you excited that the Lord Jesus could come at any moment? Do you look forward to that? Now, you might say, well, yeah, sort of. I mean, I guess it depends when he comes. I remember a friend who said, yeah, I want Jesus to come back, but I sure want to get married first. I said, why? Now, I didn't say that. I was single when I said that, okay? I said, you know, I told her, I said, I've never been married, but I got to believe that the marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven is going to be a lot better than any great experience you could ever have on earth. Let the Lord, and He will, interrupt your life with His coming. C.S. Lewis once said something very wisely. He said, it's because Christians have largely ceased to focus on the next world that we've become so ineffective in this one. There's something about communion that makes us not only look backward, not only look to the present, but go, He's coming back. Finally, and it's in the same chapter, we look at the preparation for the breaking of bread. In verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many have died or many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. There's an old proverb from business that says, The one who fails to take frequent inventories will soon go bankrupt. And so the communion table demands a certain preparation. We come, we gather, we're going to take these elements. But it's a time where we, we reconcile anything that is askew between us and God. Did you know that our Christian forefathers used to keep weekly journals 
of their relationship with God. So that the time of communion would come, they would review those journals and confess their sins, their shortcomings, ask God to give them a clean slate. So it says in verse 27, whoever drinks this cup or eats this bread in an unworthy manner. I'm glad it's translated that way because the old King James is a little misleading. It says whoever drinks it unworthily. It's misleading to some. It's really not linguistically. Unworthily is an adverb, not an adjective. And it speaks of the manner. And yet some people go, I can't take communion. I'm unworthy as a person. Join the crowd. Every one of us is unworthy. It's not speaking of, are you worthy enough to come close to God? No one is. The issue is that you take this in a worthy manner, in a reverent way. An old Scottish theologian, John Duncan, was in a communion service years ago at his church. The elements were being passed out, and a young lady saw the elements, and she turned her head and kind of motioned to the elders to take the elements away from her because she felt she was unworthy. She loved the Lord, but she just thought, I'm not worthy. And John Duncan put his long, bony fingers on her shoulder and said, Take it, lassie. It's for sinners. That's what it's for. I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. No one here is worthy. But that's not the issue. His blood makes us worthy. But we should take these elements in a worthy manner. So we can come and we can take these elements in an unworthy manner. How? Well, if we come ritualistically, it's an unworthy manner. If somehow we're thinking that, well, you know, my heart's not into it, but i got to do this. Every Christian has to do it. I'll just do it. I'll go through the motions. That's ritualistically. That's an unworthy manner. Number two, if you come superstitiously, going, yeah, man, I'm really a bad person and I sin all the time, but if I take communion, you know, I'll make it. I'll get into heaven. It's like going to give me some special kudos with God. That's superstitious. Number three, if you come sinfully, that is with bitterness or hatred or sin in your heart that is unconfessed and you haven't gotten your heart right with God, you're taking it in an unworthy manner. You stop, you pause, and you ask God to forgive you. And fourth, I would say, if you come frivolously, you say, yeah, this is a cool, fun little thing to do with my buddies. Isn't this cool? Tastes good, doesn't it? Then you are deflating it of reverence and coming frivolously. How should we come? Well, we should come humbly and like this, collectively. And, And in doing so collectively and making this a priority, we're making a statement. The walls are down between us. The walls are down between us. We're all sinners. We're all saved by God's grace if we called on his name. We're all in need of his love. We're all in need of his forgiveness. And it indicates in my view, as I believe is a scriptural view, that we are committed to fellowship. We are committed to healing wounds, not opening up wounds. I want to... um, Pray in a moment, and I'm going to read this paragraph to you before the elements are actually passed out. I want you to listen to this paragraph. I think it, uh, it is so true. I pondered it many, many times before. It sums it up best. This person writes, The neighborhood bar 
is possibly the best counterfeit to the fellowship Christ wants to give his church. The bar is an imitation dispensing liquor instead of grace, escape rather than reality. But it's accepting. It is an inclusive fellowship. It is unshockable. Did you hear that? It's unshockable. You can tell people secrets and they usually don't tell others or even want to. The bar flourishes not because most people are alcoholics, but because God has put it into the human heart, the desire to know and be known, to love and to be loved. And so many people seek a counterfeit at the price of a few beers. With all my heart, writes this author, I believe that Christ wants his church to be unshockable. A fellowship where people can come in and say, I'm sunk. I'm beat. I've had it. Alcoholics Anonymous has this quality. Our churches too often miss it. We come in, so many expecting one another to effervesce. Hi, I'm a Christian. You see by my smile? Hallelujah. Well, what about if you go, what's wrong with you? You're not a Christian. How about, boy, how can I help you? How can I pray for you? Tell me anything and I'll keep it in my heart and I'll love you regardless. That's church. And they were devoted to that. Let's bow our hearts, and I'm going to ask as we do the communion board to come forward. Heavenly Father, in the next few moments as we pass out these elements, we want to bring our hearts before you and lay them bare and ask, Lord, that you'd search us so that we might confess anything that might be hindering us. And we pray that if someone here is not yet your child, has not devoted themselves to the person of Jesus Christ through a relationship, that comes only by his shed blood, that that would be done, that every heart would surrender. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.